Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 151. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to start today by reading verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is God's word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. May God give us ears to hear his word. To begin with, I have a little story to tell you. I know I've shared this story before, but it's helpful uh, to think through for our purposes. Uh, some of the details have been changed, but the basic gist of what I'm going to tell you is actually a true story coming from the Middle Ages. Well, like I said, it is the Middle Ages, and you're poor. Very poor, and everybody you know is poor. Your parents are poor, your siblings are poor, your friends are poor, your local church is poor. These are rough days. Well, as was common in the Middle Ages, some of your friends find themselves in debtor's prison. They can't pay their bills, they are penniless, and unless somebody pays their bills, they can't get out of jail. And two of those who happen to be in debtor's prison are two of the people you love very dearly, your pastor and your father. Now, neither of these people have done anything morally wrong. They haven't committed any crimes or anything like that. But just due to hard times, being unable to pay their bills, they are in debtor's prison. And again, they'll be there the rest of their lives until somebody comes along and pays their debt. Well, one day you happen upon some money. Maybe you do a little bit of extra work for your boss, maybe he's particularly generous, and you've got an extra amount of cash, and this extra amount just so happens to be the exact amount that you would need to get one of these individuals out of debtor's prison. Just one. You can't pay off the debts for them both, but for one, either your father or your pastor, you could pay the debt and get them out of debtor's prison. Well, all of a sudden you're faced with this dilemma. You've got to choose. Who do I release? Is it my father or my pastor? It's a painful choice. Well, you talk to your friends, you talk to your family, you talk to people you trust, and interestingly, they all give you the same answer. They all agree on whom you should pay the debt for and release from prison. And who do you think that would be? Don't say anything out loud yet. Just think about it. Who do you think you ought to release under such circumstances? Well, stick with me, because at the end of our time together, I'll tell you the rest of the story. You'll have to trust me here, but at the end, this will tie together. And if you could release only one of these two people... Perhaps by the end you'll understand why these people gave you this advice. Well, it's with this that we introduce the second part of our little mini-series on the evangelization and discipleship of children. Uh, to begin this new year like we often do, we're reminding ourselves of some foundational DNA, some foundational convictions that we want to characterize our church. And certainly among those would be caring for children, sharing the gospel with children and making disciples of them. To remind you of what we talked about last week, last week we discussed two questions. First, we looked at who's really shaping and influencing our kids. And I made a claim that I think is honestly irrefutable. I claimed that the media is doing far more than any other source to influence our kids. 
TV, movies, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, those really are serving as the shepherds of the next generation. And like we saw last week, that's not particularly a good thing. The beliefs, the convictions, the values of today's media, they're almost always the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Because of that, we should not be surprised at all that upwards of 70% of kids who are raised in church abandon the faith after high school. I mean, why would we expect anything other if they've been indoctrinated by the media for 50 hours a week for the first 18 years of their lives? You know, in a sense, we'd be surprised if they didn't fall away. The second question we talked about last week was who should be shaping and influencing our kids? And without a doubt, the Bible's answer is clear. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible emphasizes the priority of the home in evangelizing and discipling kids. Families, and particularly fathers, ought to be very active, very intentional in passing on the faith to their children. And like we claimed last week, if families can learn how to do this more successfully, we will see a far greater percentage of kids continuing in the faith on into adulthood. Well, that was last week's sermon, and at the end of last week's sermon, you might have been thinking, oh, this is great and all, but how do we actually do this? How do we put this into practice? How do I actively, intentionally pass on the faith? Well, Lord willing, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I want to approach this topic in two parts. Two parts. First, we're going to talk about some practical suggestions for evangelizing and discipling our children. What might this really look like in everyday life? And then second, we're going to talk about some encouragements to do this. What's going to fuel me? What's going to motivate me to keep going year after year, decade after decade, especially when it gets tough, when life's busy? Lord willing, that's where we're going today. So let's talk about this first question. What are some practical strategies for evangelizing and discipling our children? And under this heading, I want to share with you some thoughts on a wide variety of topics. Let's talk first about sharing the gospel with children. Sharing the gospel with children. Now, the first thing we need to say is that children, though they are certainly precious, though they are blessings and gifts from God, though they are created in the image of God, they are nonetheless sinners. Sinners in need of a Savior. If the Bible is true, children are not born innocent, they're not born with a clean slate, but they're born already alienated from God and in need of forgiveness. It's like David saying in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the man after God's own heart. If even he was brought forth in iniquity, what should we say about our own children? Or Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now, it's because of this reality that every child's greatest need is to hear and to believe the gospel. And this is true not only for your children, but for all the children of the earth. Their greatest need is to hear, understand, and believe the gospel. Therefore, if you are a parent, your first job is to be an evangelist to your kids. It should be said of all of our children, what was said of Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you know Timothy's life, where did Timothy learn the Bible? Sadly, it wasn't from his dad. His dad was not even a Christian. Instead, listen to 2 Timothy 1.5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure it dwells in you as well. About this high calling of sharing the gospel with our kids, Pastor John MacArthur writes this. Your top priority job as a parent, then, is to be an evangelist in your home. You need to teach your children the law of God. 
Teach them the gospel of divine grace. Show them their need for a savior and point them to Jesus, Jesus Christ as the only one who can save them. If they grow up without a keen awareness of their need for salvation, you as a parent will have failed in your primary task as their spiritual leader. Well, if a child's greatest need is to hear and believe the gospel, what then is this gospel that we share with our children? Well, it's the same gospel, the identical gospel that saved any of us, and it's the same gospel that we preach here every week. The gospel of Jesus declares that you were made to know God, created in his image, to have a relationship with him. And yet, we've sinned. We've rebelled against our creator. We've lived the life we wanted to live without any regard to how God designed it to be lived. We've intentionally, willfully broken God's laws thousands of times and realized this. One act of defiance earns us God's judgment. If one act of defiance earns us that, what, what do most of us deserve? Now, because God is righteous and holy, he will punish us for our sins, both in this life and in the life to come. And yet, under those very dire, grave circumstances, God loved us. He loved us and he acted. God became incarnate. He took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus grew up and lived a perfect, sinless life, but then he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, realized he bore the judgment of God in our place. He took in his body and his soul the wrath of God, the punishment of God, in the place of all of those who would ever repent of their sin and trust in him. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you today is true and to exalt him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now, in response, Jesus is calling you. Turn from your sin. Trust in me. Be saved. Stop running from God. Stop trying to live without any regard to how I designed life to be lived. And rely on me. Trust in me. See me as the one who fought your battles in your place. And before we go any further, that's exactly what I invite you to do now. Extend to you this invitation to trust in the Lord Jesus and be saved. This is true for children and adults. Uh, boy and girl, man and woman, this is the only hope you have, any of us have, of being made right with our Creator, of being forgiven of our sins, and of experiencing eternal life. So if you've never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Just stop running from God, rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. Embrace Him, embrace His loving leadership, see Him as the Savior of your soul. Trust Jesus today and be saved. That's the gospel that we all must believe in order to be saved, and that's the gospel that we communicate to our children, that they too might be saved. So trust Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, talk to me. I'll be at the front door after the service. But trust Jesus today. Another thing we should say about sharing the gospel with kids is that I believe children can be converted at a very young age. Uh, though they must comprehend and believe the gospel, they can be converted at a very young age. And I'm thinking five, four, maybe even three. As soon as they're old enough to understand the basics of who Jesus is and what he's done. Listen, for example, to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 3. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, if you follow it along in that passage, Jesus not only calls us to emulate children, but he says that this little one believes in me. He said that because children can be converted very young. 
Now, if what I've said up to this point is true, let me give you a few practical suggestions for sharing the gospel with kids. How should we tell children about Jesus? A few practical suggestions. First, don't simplify the gospel, but explain the gospel in simple terms. Don't simplify the gospel, but explain the gospel in simple terms. Don't leave out the hard stuff. Uh, don't so dilute it that it's not the gospel anymore. Don't say it's only Jesus wants to be your friend. Of course Jesus wants to be your friend, but it's a lot more than that. Tell them that they have sinful hearts, that they've rebelled against God. Tell them that God is perfect and holy. I remember talking, I used to do a lot of children evangelism back in college, and they wouldn't get holiness, but they did get perfect. So I'd say, God is holy. You know what that means? And usually they'd be like, I don't know what that means. they say, God is perfect. And then they'd often say, almost instinctively, nobody's perfect like God. Four-year-olds, five-year-olds can get that. Don't so dilute the gospel that it's no longer the gospel at all, but explain it in language and in illustrations they can comprehend. But secondly, go slow and be thorough. Go slow and be thorough. Don't fly through things if you don't think they're getting it. Don't feel compelled to seal the deal in one conversation. You know, take very much a long-term view here, the culmination of hopefully dozens of conversations. Take your time, review and repeat, review and repeat, and keep going until they've got a thorough and accurate understanding of the gospel. Another suggestion, don't ignore the skeptical questions of our age, but address them head-on with Scripture. Don't ignore the skeptical questions of our age, but address them head-on with Scripture. And this will be all the more important as your kids become teenagers. Something that I've seen happen often, uh, kids will hear about some objection to Christianity. Uh, maybe on Facebook, maybe from their friends at school, maybe something on the History Channel. Uh, they'll hear something, you know, the Bible's been changed, or Jesus didn't actually rise again from the dead, or science contradicts the Bible. They'll hear this, and they'll bring it up to their parents, and oftentimes their parents say this, oh, don't worry about that little Billy, just trust in Jesus. Don't worry about that, little Susie. Just trust in Jesus. Many parents do that not realizing what they're communicating by doing that. By doing that, they're communicating basically that Christianity is a fairy tale, that it can't stand up to the objections of our world. So learn how to refute the skeptical questions of our age head on. Learn some basic apologetics. Learn reasons for why we believe what we believe. Maybe check out the Ministry of Answers in Genesis that has a whole array of resources for addressing these questions. If you're a parent, get equipped. And again, this will be all the more important as your kids become teenagers. The Christian faith can stand up to the worst that the world brings against it, but if we have nothing to say, again, we're unintentionally communicating that Christianity is a fairy tale. Here's one last suggestion for sharing the gospel with children. Encourage steps of faith, but don't presume. Encourage steps of faith, but don't presume. If your four-year-old says, I, I invited Jesus into my heart in Sunday school, encourage that. Praise God. That's awesome. But don't think that the conversation's over. Continue that conversation over the years, clarifying what Jesus has done, clarifying what it means to follow Jesus. I encourage that, but don't think, wow, I'm glad that's over. I don't need to worry about talking to them again about Jesus. You see what I'm saying? I ask you very frankly, parents, have you shared the gospel with your children? Mom, Dad, have you talked to your kids about their need for forgiveness, their need for Jesus, and invited them to turn to him and be saved? I know that many, many parents, they don't share the gospel with their kids. I don't know if they're afraid or if they feel ill-equipped. They think that the Sunday school teacher, the children's church workers are going to take care of it and they don't need to worry about it. Uh, that, that's tragic. 
you, if you're a parent, have this responsibility to talk to your kids about Jesus. And I think that probably this is why we're not very good evangelists in the workplace. We don't talk to anybody about Jesus, let alone our kids, so therefore it would be really weird to talk about Jesus in the workplace. So again, parents, especially dads, have you talked to, their, to, your, to your children about Jesus and their need to trust in him? Now, with all of these different areas, I'm going to give you a recommended book in the event you want to learn more, think more on this topic. And regarding sharing the gospel with your kids, the best resource I'm aware of is John MacArthur's What the Bible Says About Parenting, Biblical Principles for Raising Godly Children. Obviously, the book's about parenting in general, but the section on communicating the gospel to children is the best I've encountered. So check out What the Bible Says About Parenting, Biblical Principles for Raising Godly Children, if you want more on sharing the gospel with kids. Quickly, a second area. Let me give you some thoughts on the informal discussion of the things of God. Informal discussion of the things of God. This is what Deuteronomy 6, the passage we read earlier, is talking about. I remind you, Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You see there, the entire idea is to just casually, continually be talking about the things of God. When you're doing laundry, when you're uh, laying mulch in your yard, uh, when you're walking around the mall, God just so peppers your conversations that he comes up all the time. And I believe God has designed kids to facilitate this. If you've ever had kids or been around kids, they're asking questions constantly. You ever seen that? I don't think that's just an annoyance. I think God has given that to them to help you as parents fill in their, biblical, their, their worldview with biblical truth. Let me see if I can give you some examples of how you might do this. Several years ago, I was at the breakfast table with one, one of my sons. I think he was around five. And out of the blue, he asks me this. He says, Dad, why is it I see that girls wear less clothing than boys? Why is that? You know, he's got his eyes open. He can see what's going on. Why is it that girls wear less? Now, what do you say to a five-year-old to help him interpret that biblically? So, for example, if you and your daughter, you're coloring with crayons, and she asks you why it's okay to eat cows but not people, you talk about the way in which people are made in the image of God, and because of that, we treat them regardless of their behavior with dignity. You're playing Legos with your son, and he asks you why men have beards but women don't. You talk about the way God made men and women differently, and that's good, and they're designed to complement one another. Say you and your daughter, you're raking leaves, and she asks you why she can't cuss like all the other kids do at school. You talk about the way in which God gave us speech to glorify him, and, and the way in which our speech reveals our hearts. Your son asks you about this questionable movie, and you, you haven't seen the movie yourself, but you can tell from the trailer that it's not good stuff. You help him think through that. Will this help you think on that which is true and honorable, lovely, commendable, pure? Your 13-year-old daughter, she mentions to you that she really, really, really needs a serious boyfriend. And if she got a serious boyfriend, her life would be complete. There's a lot there you could talk about. Talk about the way in which human relationships will not complete us like a relationship with God will. And moreover, you really shouldn't get into a serious romantic relationship until marriage is a possibility. And if your kids ask you about terrorist attacks, which seems to happen all the time, you talk about the way we're born with evil hearts and left to ourselves will do terrible things and we need to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. You see what I'm saying? You're trying to help them interpret reality through the Bible. But I'd encourage you, don't just wait for them to bring it up. Please introduce, and really you probably should do it earlier than you think. 
introduce topics and bring them up. Maybe just at dinner, throw out a thought-provoking question and see where it goes. You know, who made God? Or could God commit suicide? Or why can't two guys get married according to God? Or uh, where did Lazarus, one of my kids asked me this and I didn't actually know the answer. Where did Lazarus go between his death and when Jesus raised him? You might not even know the answer, but it'll get some good conversation going and you can even dig into the scriptures together to ask or to answer them. Like I said last week, I'd really encourage you to evaluate movies and TV together. Uh, I've discovered that it doesn't work so well in the middle of the movie. I used to encourage people to hit pause and talk about it. Your kids might get a little bit provoked if you do that, but certainly afterwards, sit down and talk about what are the messages that were in this movie? You know, is it really true that I should follow my heart? Is it really true that love is all we need? Discuss these things. Help them to learn how to evaluate media. In all of this, the goal is to help your children interpret reality through the Bible. Again, that's the goal, to help them interpret reality through the Bible. Your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your spouse, your friends. If you don't give them answers from the Bible, realize that Google, Wikipedia, YouTube, they will be more than happy to give your kids answers. They just won't be the answers that the Bible gives. Now again, if you want to explore this area more, a good resource on this topic is Vodi Bauckham's book, The Family Driven Faith doing what it takes to raise sons and daughters who walk with God. It's Vodi Bauckham's uh, The Family Driven Faith, doing what it takes to raise sons and daughters who walk with God. Now, I should tell you up front, there are a couple of chapters in this book I don't agree with. He argues for what's called the family integrated church model, which I don't find entirely persuasive, but otherwise it's a really good book, and especially on this topic of helping your kids develop a biblical worldview. Check it out. Quickly, another area you might consider, one-to-one Bible reading. One-to-one Bible reading. Now, what one-to-one Bible reading is, it's exactly what the name implies. Uh, You get together with another person, maybe one of your kids, maybe two of your kids, maybe your grandkids, maybe your whole family. You guys get together, and, and it's really quite simple. You pray for help. Lord, help me understand this passage. You read a passage, you talk about what it means, and then you pray it back to God. Uh, The sort of Bible reading that we do, uh, say, in Sunday school before we look at our lesson, that's what I'm talking about. Or what we do in our midweek online Bible talks, it's really that simple. Uh, But if you can get in the habit of this with your kids, it can change change their lives. And don't think you've got to do it every day. I mean, if you did this once in a while, it would be helpful. You know, like, like once every six months or something like that, it could be very, very helpful. So let's just imagine this. Say, you know, you, you and your son, you set up a time hey, we're, we're going to get together. It's going to be 15 minutes long. Get yourself a nice cup of coffee, nice donut. You open, say, up the Gospel of Mark. I've read Mark often with people like this. Mark's a very good book to do this. It's a gospel. It's short. You pray, Lord, open our eyes that we might understand your word. We believe you're speaking through this. Please convict us, illuminate us. Then you read a paragraph or two. And you ask, what's God saying in this passage? What's really the point here? How does this apply to our lives? How should we live, believe, act differently? And then after you've talked about it for maybe 10, 15 minutes, you pray, Lord, please give us grace to put this into practice, to believe these things. It's as simple as that. But again, just imagine you did that in your family once every, once every other month, but you did that for like 10 years. Can you see how in the long run that could possibly change your family profoundly? And don't think only of your immediate family members here. Obviously, we're talking about our children here, but I'd love to see folks in our congregation doing this together. You know, we, we often get together for coffee, lunch. Why not throw in there maybe 10, 15 minutes of reading the Bible together? 
you know, you don't have to make a whole hour about reading the Bible together, but just, you know, hey, let's get together. You get together at Subway or something like that. You eat, talk about life, talk about the cults. And then you're like, hey, let's, let's read this paragraph here from Romans and talk about it. That I really would love it if that were ordinary Christian life. Again, if you want to explore this whole topic further, let me recommend two books this time. They're little tiny things. They're more like booklets. But the first is One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm. The other is Bible Reading with Your Kids by John Nielsen. Both of these are in our church library if you want to check them out. Um, but frankly, it's a pretty easy thing to do. It's not rocket science. And, you know, I kind of explained in five minutes here all that those books are going to tell you. But check out One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm or... Bible reading with your kids for more guidance on this topic. Quickly, one final area for you to consider. Family worship. Family worship. Now, by family worship, what I mean is families getting together in their homes, singing God's praises, listening to God's word, and praying together. Uh, Think of it as a lot more than just saying grace. Think of it as almost like a mini church service with your family. Might strive to do it every day, maybe every other day. You know, we all get busy and so forth. Um, It could be seven minutes, ten minutes, but this little time where you come together as a family and praise God and hear him speak to you as a family. Now, I realize that family worship is not something most Christian families do today, but do realize that if you read church history, this was the norm until relatively recently. It's kind of fascinating here. If you got in a time machine and went back to, say, 17th century Germany... 18th century Philadelphia, 19th century London, most Christian families were gathering for the kind of family worship I'm describing, and the family that didn't was looked at as kind of odd. Recently, I was reading the memoirs of uh, one of the 101st Airborne soldiers that was stationed in England. Um, And, you know, if you remember World War II, a lot of these British soldiers, they're they're kind of stationed in England. They're going to go do other stuff, but they're hanging out with these British families living in their homes. And the soldier talks about the way in which every night after dinner, uh, the father of the family in whose house he's staying would pull down the Bible, read it together, talk about it together, and then pray together. And he thought this, this was kind of novel, but what that was, that was simply a hangover of something that was universal uh, up until relatively recently. Now, the benefits of daily family worship, they are many. Uh, and, and let me give you a few here. Two from a guy named James Alexander and a couple from my own experience. First, James Alexander writes this. He says, What families regard as important is evidenced by the manner in which they spend their time. Therefore, regular family worship shows the children that their parents believe that Jesus Christ is central in all of life. This practice leaves a legacy that will benefit thousands in generations to come. I mean, in a way, what he's saying there is just common sense. You will communicate to your kids what is important through what you regularly prioritize. They they just sort of automatically pick this up. If you, every single night, read the newspaper, your kids are going to think reading the newspaper is pretty important. If every single Sunday you watch the Colts, they're going to conclude watching the Colts is pretty important. Similarly, if you were to prioritize family worship, and even if it were five minutes a day every other day, Over time, your kids are going to figure out worshiping God is pretty important. You can think about it this way. In one sense, every family does do family worship. They don't just always worship the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Every family will do family worship of a sort. It's just not the Lord God Almighty that they worship. For some, it might be the cults. For some, it might be complaining about the government. For some, it might be their smartphones. But they're communicating to their kids through daily prioritizing of this thing uh, what's truly important. It's just 
is it the Lord that you're communicating to your kids that's important? Another benefit of family worship from James Alexander, he says this, Nothing will spur a father toward godly spiritual discipleship in his own walk with Christ more than leading his family in worship. In order to teach his wife and children, he will have to study the scriptures on his own. A godly woman will be encouraged and inspired as she sees her husband take responsibility and lead in family worship. This practice sets a tone of harmony and love in the household and is a source of strength when they go through affliction together. As they pray for each other, their mutual love will be strengthened. It's probably a little bit idealistic, and yet there's a lot of truth in what he's saying there. It will do a lot more to provoke harmony in your family than, say, complaining about the government. Now, if I could add a couple of my own benefits, we've practiced family worship virtually since Benjamin was an infant. And over that time, I've seen the way in which practically this has served to draw our family together. I mean, just imagine if every day you were having a little family meeting, how beneficial that would be to your family. In addition to that, we sing God's praises, read God's word, pray together for things that we're going through as a family. It has served profoundly to draw us closer together. And I know that this sounds kind of outlandish, but I've said before that even if there weren't a God, which obviously there is, but even if there weren't a God, I'd probably still do family worship for the way that it binds a family together. With my kids, I'm trying to train them so that they see this as just a normal part of life when they grow up. You know, I'm trying to get them ready for when they're fathers and mothers uh, so that they'll just incorporate this into their families with their kids. Another benefit of family worship, I think it can enhance Sunday worship. I think regular family worship can enhance Sunday worship. A lot of us, we find Sunday worship kind of boring. You know, being honest, I I grew up in church and know what it's like. Uh, If that's the case, it's probably because we're not doing enough preparation throughout the week. You know, you could think of it this way. Think of preparation through the week as like the football team practicing for the big game on Sunday. You're going to play a whole lot better on Sunday if you're practicing throughout the week, both in football and in worship. You see what I'm saying? Now again, if you want to explore family worship more, check out Donald Whitney's book, Family Worship in the Bible, in History, and in Your Home by Donald Whitney. We have this book in our church library. We also have it on audio CD. I know that not everybody likes reading words on a page. So if you'd like to listen to the same content on a CD, we have the CD in our library. But check out Family Worship in the Bible, in history, and in your home. The section you might find most surprising is the historical part. Because again, this was almost universal until, say, the 20s. It does seem as if World War II changed an awful lot about American Christianity. Now, before we conclude this point, Something I do want to be careful to emphasize, uh, you might be hearing all of these suggestions and recommendations and feeling kind of overwhelmed, especially if you haven't really done much in this area up until now. Uh, don't let that be the case. You know, realize Jesus has died for all of our sins. Our righteousness is Jesus, not our performance. And instead of trying to implement all of these things today, maybe just pick one or two and say, this week, this month, we're going to put this into practice. And then maybe six, six months from now, try something else. Add something. Take a very much a long-term view. Otherwise, you can really get overwhelmed and then just give up. You see what I'm saying? So maybe just pick one or two things to put into practice right now. Let's talk quickly about a second question, and this second question will be relatively brief. But what are some biblical encouragements for evangelizing and discipling our kids? Uh, What's going to keep me going? What's going to fuel me in this year after year? Now, honestly, I think this is what most of us parents need. I mean, if you attend here regularly, nothing that I've said in these two sermons is new. Uh, We talk about this often. 
But this is an intimidating calling. It's a tall order, and to do it year after year, decade after decade, especially when your kids don't seem particularly interested, what's going to keep me going? Well, in closing, let me give you three biblical encouragements here. Encouragement number one, believe that the gospel is the power of God. Believe that the gospel is the power of God. In Romans 1.16, God's Spirit says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I find it fascinating that Paul doesn't say the gospel contains the power of God, but the gospel is the power of God. You unleash it, and it starts doing its work. Hearts are changed, lives are changed, and that's just as true for your children as it is for anybody. I know that many of us here could testify the way that the gospel has changed us dramatically. Uh, radically changed us in ways that are really supernatural that can't be explained any other way. That's definitely my story. I was this short, awkward, uh, cowardly, doofus teenager, uh, obsessed with professional wrestling, obsessed with video games, didn't do well in school, didn't do well in sports, did even worse with girls. I was basically wasting my life until kind of on a whim, the Lord took me to Bible college and everything changed. God captivated me, the Bible captivated me, the gospel captivated me, and everything changed, and I've never been the same. And I know that many of you could say something similar. Many of us have experienced freedom from profound spiritual slavery through the gospel. Many of us have experienced comfort after terrible grief through the gospel. Many of us have experienced forgiveness of horrific sins through the gospel. We've seen God do some pretty amazing things through his word, haven't we? And here's what I want to emphasize. If the gospel has changed you, why would we not think it could do the same in our kids? I mean, that gospel, if it so changed you, why? And realize I'm preaching just as much to myself here as I am to you. But if the gospel changed me, if the gospel changed you, if it forgave, forgave us and reconciled us to God and, and restored our marriages and gave us joy and gave us peace, why would we expect anything less in the lives of our kids? So keep sharing it year after year. Keep talking about it. Keep begging God to work and believe that eventually God will turn the lights on and work in your kids' lives. And then in the words of Colossians 1.6, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard and truly understood God's grace. Quickly, second encouragement. Second, believe that God's word cannot return void. Believe that God's word cannot return void. Even when you can't see it working. Even when your kids seem completely disinterested. Even when they'd much rather watch TV or movies than talk about Jesus. Believe you're sowing seeds. You're sowing seeds and with the water of God's grace and with the help of the Holy Spirit and hopefully with the help of a good local church, those seeds will grow and bury harvest of righteousness. One of my favorite doctrines in the entire Bible is the doctrine of the scriptures, because one of the things that you learn is that the scriptures are more than just words, more, far more than just words. The scriptures are a dynamic force that accomplishes God's purposes. Just like the angels always obey God, the word always obeys God and does what he desires. The word is the force that gives people faith and grows our faith. It's like Isaiah 55, 11 says, My word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to be empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 
or Jesus in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God's spirit works through his word to give spiritual life, to change spiritual life. Really, the Bible, you've got to look at it, it's the conduit through which God's spirit works, both in our lives and in the lives of our kids. And again, if, that has, if you've experienced even the smallest taste of that, which I hope and pray you have, why would we expect anything less in the lives of our kids? So believe, brothers and sisters, that God's word cannot return void. Keep teaching it. Keep reading it with your kids. Keep bringing them to Sunday school. Keep bringing them to children's church. And by God's grace and with the power of his spirit, that word will eventually bear fruit. Quickly, one third and final encouragement. Uh, When you feel like giving up, when you're tired, when your kids aren't interested, believe that while your children may not appreciate your efforts to evangelize and disciple them now, almost certainly they will thank you one day. Believe that while your children may not and probably won't appreciate your efforts to evangelize and disciple them now, almost certainly they will thank you one day. In my mind, this is really just another application of Hebrews 11.29. Think about this. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. We didn't respect them at the time. We'd much rather, you know, they hadn't been spanking us at the time. But later on, we were glad they did. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I'll tell you what really turned me on to this priority of evangelizing and discipling kids. I attended a pastor's conference, and I was trying to think about when this was, but it was a good 15 years ago, if not more. And I was chatting with some other pastors, like we often do, around the book table. And I was there with a pastor whose parents really took these things seriously. He was all grown up now, but his parents had carefully shared the gospel with him, carefully discipled him all his life, and I was overwhelmed by the obvious gratitude, emotional gratitude, clear gratitude for his parents taking his eternal welfare so seriously. And that affected him. And I remember thinking, I, I would love it if in 50 years my parents spoke this way about me, or pardon me, if my kids spoke this way about me. I'd just love it if, you know, who knows if we're going to be able to see from heaven, but if from heaven I could see my funeral and my kids were talking about me the way that this guy is talking about his parents and their concern for his spiritual welfare, that would be worth it all. And I came home from that conference profoundly committed to the discipleship and evangelization of my kids. Let me share with you a similar testimony from a guy named Pastor Joel Beakey. This is a totally different guy. This isn't the guy I ran into at the conference, but he says something very similar. He says this, When my parents commemorated their 50th anniversary, all five of us children decided to express thanks to our father and mother for one thing without consulting each other. Remarkably, all five of us thanked our mother for her prayers, and all five of us thanked our father for his leadership of our Sunday evening family worship. My brother, now get this next section. My brother said, Dad, the oldest memory I have is of tears streaming down your face as you taught us from Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings how the Holy Spirit leads believers. At the age of three, God used you in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity. And I want to thank you for that. Would you like your kids to say something similar to that at your 50th anniversary? Or again, at your funeral, who knows what we'll be able to see. But at your funeral, would you hope that your kids, maybe your spouse, your grandkids would say something like that about you? If so, what steps do you need to commit to this week 
What do you need to commit to right now so that in 50 years your parents will say, my parents made a lot of mistakes, but at least they prioritized my eternal welfare. Believe, brothers and sisters, your children will probably not appreciate it now. But if you persevere at this one day, they will probably thank you. Now to wrap up our time this morning, I want to finish up that little story I told you at the beginning. Remember that story, your pastor, your father, they're both in debtor's prison, you come across some money and it's only enough to get one of them out of prison. Remember that? Again, you talk to your friends, you talk to your family, you talk to your local church, and they all give you the same answer. Here's what they say. You should pay for the individual who taught you the most about following Jesus. You've got to decide who that is. But whoever it was who taught you the most about following Jesus, who taught you the most of the Word of God, who displayed to you godly living, whoever that individual was, that's the person you should pay to get out of debtor's prison. And in conclusion, all I want you to do is think about this. If you were in that situation, who would your parents pay for to get them out of prison? Would it be you? Would it be somebody else? Would your children say that they've learned the most about following Jesus, the most about the Word of God from you or somebody else? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, these topics can be overwhelming. Uh, Lord, parenting itself is overwhelming. And then to think of eternal souls entrusted to us, it, it, it's, it's crazy. Uh, Lord, so help us, help us not to despair. Help us not to give up. We do thank you that Jesus has died and risen again and that that is our hope. That is our righteousness. Uh, Lord, for those of us who have been lax here, failed here, uh, give us grace to repent and change. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would cause all of our families to be families where uh, the word of God, prayer, Jesus, the gospel is just talked about, discussed everywhere where it affects our interactions, how we speak to one another, how we forgive and seek forgiveness. Lord, please have mercy on our families. We pray again for every child connected to this congregation, uh, from infants right on up to adult children who have gone astray. Please, Lord, work in their hearts, and if they don't yet know you, give them real repentance and faith. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen.